Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to another episode of Broadway Nation. Everyone in town is always singing the song. Shuffle along, shuffle along. Doctors, bakers, undertakers do a step. That's full of pep and think of patience. Shuffle along and whistle a song. Keep smiling and shuffle along. Broadway Nation is the podcast that tells the remarkable story of how immigrants, Jews, queers, African-Americans, and other outcasts invented the Broadway musical and how they changed America in the process. I'm David Armstrong, and I call this episode 100 Years of Shuffle Along, Part 3. This year marks the 100th anniversary of Shuffle Along, the groundbreaking musical that kicked off a vibrant decade of black musical theater on Broadway, which included more than a dozen shows that were created by black songwriters, black book writers, black producers, black directors, and choreographers. And these musicals brought hundreds of black actors, singers, dancers, and musicians to Broadway. This landmark is being celebrated celebrated with the release of two wonderful new books. Earlier this season, in episodes 37 and 38 of Broadway Nation, I had the great pleasure of chatting with author Cassine Gaines about his book, which is titled Footnotes, The Black Artist Who Rewrote the Rules of the Great White Way. And today, my guests are the co-authors of the first full biography of Shuffle Along's composer, which is titled U.B. Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. Richard Carlin is the Grammy Award-winning author of numerous books on popular music, including Country Music, The Big Book of Country, and Worlds of Sound, The Story of Smithsonian Folkways. Ken Bloom is the Grammy Award-winning author of Show and Tell, the new book of Broadway anecdotes, as well as Broadway and Encyclopedia, and one of my favorite books, Broadway Musicals, The 101 Greatest Shows of All Time. And Ken has also been a Broadway correspondent for NPR and the CBC. Oh, shuffle along. Shuffle along While life was a chance And when time comes to choose If you lose Don't start singing the blues But just shuffle along Play it, Mr. Blake And whistle a song Oh, sometimes a smile Will right every wrong Keep smiling and shuffle along 
Welcome, Richard and Ken. Thank you so much for joining us on Broadway Nation today. As we've just heard, each of you have written a great number of books on a whole variety of interesting showbiz topics and creative artists of all kinds. What drew you to UB Blake? And how was it you came to work together on it? Richard was an editor of mine on past books, and we've become friends. And I produced an album of Shuffle Along. And Richard and I collaborated on the notes, and we won a Grammy Award. So once we did that, just just a hop, skip, and a jump (laughs) to write an entire book. We were both very long-term fans of UB's, having been introduced to him, as many people were, through a very key album that was recorded by John Hammond in the late 60s called The 86 Years of UB Blake. And we both Mm -hmm. felt that because of the length of his career and the depth of the work he did and the achievement he had, we just both thought he deserved a full-scale biographical treatment. There had been a as-told-to biography that was written while he was a Alive, and we felt that there was a lot more there that could be uncovered. My background is more in music and editorial work, and Ken's background is more in Broadway. So it just felt like to bring together those skills would be helpful, and it certainly turned out to be that way. It's a little surprising that no one else had done this other than one that was done during his life. Was that done during the 70s in the sort of resurgence? Right. He became pretty popular in the 70s. I mean, he was on The Tonight Show. He was performing well over 150 dates a year. I mean, for a guy in his late 80s, early 90s, pretty good. And of course, there was the Broadway review, Yubi, that also brought him renewed attention. There was this sort of as-told-to biography, but it didn't really... I mean, Yubi certainly had a phenomenal memory, and he was very widely interviewed during the revival years, which also was a great help to us. But there just was a lot more to talk about in the whole African American scene on Broadway and the music scene and some of the racism in both Broadway and the music industries that we felt really should be expressed. Plus, when we discovered that both of UB's wives were pack rats and literally saved every scrap of paper, which is pretty unusual, and that this material had been preserved, but not really gone through. Nobody had really looked at it. It was just sitting in an archive. That was really exciting. And that really wasn't the only archive we relied on, but it just was amazing. What artist can you say you can see their recording contract from 1917 and their royalty statements from 1917? You never see that. (laughs) That was really exciting to the nerd in me because people always say, oh, the record was a million seller. And they're talking about a record from 1907. You know, nobody knows, but you could really see exactly what he was paid. Often what he was contracted to be paid wasn't what he was actually paid. Which was another, not an eye opener, but something that, again, is very often not documented and speaks to the racism and the somewhat below board practices of the business. Where does that live now and how did you have to access it? Go ahead, Ken. I've been talking. (laughs) We got some things from the Library of Congress. But the majority of it was at the Maryland Historical Society in Baltimore, where Yubi grew up. And that's where he left his papers, which made sense. And we also looked at the Schoenberg Library, which is part of the New York Public Library, and it's their Black History Library. So those, I think, were the three greatest sources, Richard? 
Well, Emory also. Oh, the oh, Rose Library at Emory is where Flournoy Miller's papers are, and Flournoy was the author, lead actor in Shuffle Along. So those would be the major places. There were also private archives. Certainly, Ken is very much in touch with all the Broadway sleuths who have unearthed various things, and we also turned up a private scrapbook that's previously unknown. It helped that UB was very conscious of his legacy and preserved this material, and particularly his second wife, who had worked for W.C. Handy's publishing company, so she was super organized. She kept literal lists of every place he played during the revival years. You can actually see exactly where he toured. And there were people who UB mentored, pianists, who are still alive. We Mm -hmm. talked to them. Robert Kimball wrote a book with William Bolcom that was sort of a scrapbook more than a biography of Cecil and Blake called Reminiscing with Cecil and Blake. And we talked to both of them also. So we did have some firsthand interviews with people who actually knew him. UB was very interested in passing along the knowledge Bill Walcom told a wonderful story where UB would show him the tricks, and he had a tremendous ear, so he could say, well, you know, Big Tom played it this way, and he would play it this way, but I do it this way, and he would play you his variation, but he said, don't copy me. What he wanted his disciples to do was to take those elements like he did and kind of synthesize them into something new. And I think Balcom particularly talked about how he never quite could play ragtime until he met UB. And then all of a sudden, he really understood the rhythm because UB again had a, his mother called it a wobbly bass. And if you heard Yubi play, you immediately knew it was Yubi. Because he had a sound and approach that was totally unique, and he could play on the rottenest piano and still sound like himself. And that even when he was a kid, when he was sneaking out of his parents' house at night to play in a whorehouse, and his parents didn't know. His mother had a friend who said, oh, I heard Yubi. She recognized him through the windows. His mother was shocked. Oh, no, he's asleep in his bed every night. His mother, who was very religious, was upset until he showed how much money he made there every night. So he helped support the family. So then it It's sort of okay. That's the perfect segue to talk about where he came from, who he was. Give us just a little picture of how UB Blake enters the world and when exactly this happens. Well, UB was born in 1887 in Baltimore. His parents were both ex-slaves. His father was a stevedore, which meant he worked on the docks in Baltimore unloading ships and had served in the Civil War doing similar work. So he actually had a Civil War pension. He was one of the African-American enlistees in the war. His mother, as Ken said, was a very religious woman. She had been raised in an orphanage in Baltimore. Yubi was, he said, the 11th and only surviving child of his mother and father. Both played significant roles in his life. His father sort of taught him an important lesson when he was very young. He tells a story of coming home from school and getting beaten by white children and coming home and saying, I hate white people. And his father taught him to judge people as individuals and to understand that people sometimes were short-sighted and didn't understand the reality of the differences between the races. Yubi showed musical talent from a very young age. He told the story, again, 
who knows how accurate it was, that when he was about five years old, his parents took him to the market and they would go late at night because things would be cheaper. People in the market would be throwing away the bread so you could get good deals if you went late at night. And he heard someone playing a pump organ in the store and ran into the store and started playing. The store owner, seeing a chance to make some money, convinced his mother to rent a pump organ. And of course, being a religious woman, she would have been okay with her son playing the organ as long as he played religious music. And he was lucky in that one of his neighbors, a teenage woman, was a pianist. He sort of went from there, but he was basically self-trained. He said when he heard a melody, he heard the accompaniment. And he did have a phenomenal ear. In later life interviews, he would imitate the voices of people like Burt Williams, the famous African-American comedian, and singers he worked with that were never recorded. He had an ear for sound that was really quite amazing. And although he grew up in what we would call a slum today, they didn't have the attitude that it was a slum. I don't think they felt downtrodden or that society was against them because in their society, they could advance as much as they could advance. And it was also not wholly segregated. It was basically all the poor people lived together. I think Yubi was aware that they certainly were living in substandard housing. He talks about one of their houses leaning <laughs> significantly. But they were a slight class ahead of some people because in those days, the row houses all backed onto alleyways. And believe it or not, there were additional people living in the alleyways, and they were considered even lower class. And Yubi's family never got that low. They were always at least in a legitimate house, as it were. Right. They would have been considered fairly well-to-do compared to other Black people in that area. Yubi said that when his father was working, I mean, being a stevedore was an extremely dangerous job. People were constantly being injured by barrels falling on them, just horrible accidents all the time. He supposedly was the leader of a crew, and when he was working, he made as much as $9 a week. Now, Yubi, when he started playing piano when he was 12, was bringing in $15, $20, $25 a night in tips. If we translate that into today's dollars, that $9 that Yubi's father was earning would be worth nearly $300, and the 15 that Yubi earned in tips would be the equivalent of nearly $500. They were middle class to lower middle class by our standards right. for their time in the, their place in society. Yubi never worked a manual job, which was quite amazing for that time period because he started performing professionally so young and he was making so much more money that there was really no argument to say, hey, why don't you go work on the docks like your father? And that also was highly unusual. And he was highly fortunate that his skill was discovered and that he had the, the wherewithal to take advantage of it. And the ability to absorb all these influences. I was very interested to see that growing up in Baltimore at this time, he's still heavily influenced by what's happening on Broadway during this period and this first wave of Black Broadway musicals that are almost entirely forgotten today. Even people who really know right. Broadway don't know that there were dozens of Black shows between 1900 and 1910. A lot of these shows were primarily touring shows that stopped on Broadway for a while, but toured all over the country. And some of these shows were really popular songs of the day. And also there were recordings. He would listen to recordings 
when Sophie Tucker came into town or other people, they knew who these people were. They weren't cut off because there were no really movies. There was no other entertainment except for live theater. And that was the major influence on him. And so they knew all these people and what was going on. And he began play for some of these performances as well, didn't he? Oh, yeah. There were performance troops that came through Baltimore when he was very young, like late teenager. He actually toured briefly with what was known as a medicine show where you would have a doctor, quote unquote, who would be selling an elixir and he would take along a group usually of young black entertainers to draw a crowd. And UB took part in that. He also appeared with a touring company that actually went to New York around 1902 or so. He was briefly in this show that had been touring for decades, basically picking up young black entertainers. Although he was well aware of the black composers like Burt Williams and George Walker, Bob Cole and the Johnson brothers. His big hero was a white English composer, surprisingly enough, named Leslie Stewart. And Leslie Stewart had a big hit with a show called Floradora. Tell me, pretty maiden, are there any more at home like you? There are a few, kind sir, but simple girls and proper Then tell me, Floridora opened on Broadway in 1900 and became a massive hit. Over the following 20 years, it would tour extensively and be revived on Broadway three times. It was the first of 10 musicals the composer Leslie Stewart created for Broadway, and its biggest hit song was this one, Tell Me Pretty Maiden. Leslie Stewart and Victor Herbert were the two biggest influences on him in terms of show music. And they were highly influential on that whole generation, whether white or black, of show composers. So as Ken said, it was a very much more, I don't know if it's exactly porous, because there certainly was racial separation and racism at work. But certainly the major black composers were writing for the major white stars like Sophie Tucker. She was known as a singer of black material. You'd see headlines like, how does a Jewess from New York know anything about from the South? God bless America. That's that's what America's all about, these, these mixtures that occur because, you know, musicians play the music they love. They don't really think in terms of, oh, that's a black song or that's a white song. Maybe society is trying to box them, but really, Yubi always felt, he certainly was a big advocate of the quality of the work of black performers. Don't get me wrong, but he always felt that his music was the equal, if not better, than the work of any composer of any race. He didn't consider himself a black composer. He did a lot of waltzes, foxtrots, other things also. The irony is that the critics of Broadway did consider him a black writer. And if you read some of the racial statements about these shows that are so repulsive today, it's amazing because these were big hit shows. To read those quotes in your book, 
it was so clear that the white establishment critics were trying to keep the black creative artists in right, the box right. and not allowing them out. And I think because of that, each time we've had that wave of black artists, whether it was the first decade or in the 20s, it doesn't last because they're not allowed out of their box. One of the saddest things, like you said, was that Sissel and Blake, when they try to write, quote unquote, a mainstream musical to follow up Shuffle Along, they're very much criticized for that. And they have to walk this fine line. There's this interview we quote in the book where Sissel is saying, we're not trying to replace white people. We understand who we are. It's really heartbreaking that there's this almost unspoken, but it's just a line there they can't cross. And so they're damned if they repeat themselves but they're also damned if they try to expand into areas that just aren't acceptable for Black composers. And that's why Shuffle Along was such a big surprise to people. They were put in a theater on 63rd Street that was really a lecture hall. They had scenery and costumes from other shows. No one expected this really to be anything because it was sort of just out of the Broadway Times Square area. And I think its impact was greater because it was so unexpected. And unexpected to Cecil and Blake and the cast and Harry Court, the producer, but it, it's the outlier shows, including Hamilton and shows like that, that are different than the other shows that can be bigger hits because they are surprised. Yeah, and one of the major innovations of Shuffle Along, of course, was the horizontal chorus line, and the reason that was done was the stage wasn't deep enough. It was a lecture hall. They had to line up the girls, and of course, that became a trope for every musical sense. Before we get to Shuffle Along, I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago. This porous relationship between the creators of these shows. It's so interesting to see in that period where even on Ziegfeld shows or other reviews, both black writers and white writers have songs in those shows. And I think we're interacting much more than we think of today or that we've been told that these artists interacted. We put these in two separate worlds. I don't think that's the way it was. And I was interested in that section in your book when Yubi's in Atlantic City and he's interacting with a number of white Broadway songwriters. Well, first of all, Ziegfeld was a big proponent. He had Burt Williams and black writers writing for the Ziegfeld Follies. When Yubi was in Atlantic City, he runs into Irving Berlin. Irving Berlin wrote Alexander's Ragtime Band, and the name Alexander was a black name that people used in shorthand in songs. So he was writing blackish characters in his songs, which were really Jewish songs to a large extent. Yubi would get a stack of sheet music from the publishers every week because they wanted him to play their songs. And the white composers of that day sought out the black performers because they wanted to learn and understand that new style, understand the rhythm. So people like George Gershwin and Berlin or Jerome Kern would all go, quote unquote, slumming in the black clubs. Atlantic City in those days was the summer resort for the well-to-do white folks from New York and D.C. It drew in the very, very wealthy. And Yubi would soon be playing for people, you know, like the Carnegies, the really big money people of New York. And they would all come down to hear this new music. It was exciting. It was vital. 
Irving Berlin, as a young man, wanted his music played. So if there was places people were playing music, he was there really trying to promote his songs. And Yubi tells stories of this skinny kid with yellow shoes who would show up and try to see what he was doing. But also black performers. James B. Johnson, when he was still in his short pants, of course, later on, the composer of the Charleston, major Broadway composer, and other composers of that period were all playing Atlantic City in the summer because the work in the major cities dried up. So they would play these resort towns. There was a whole black strip there of clubs. They all employed these pianists. And it was where Yubi really established himself other than Baltimore. He really didn't get up to New York until he met Noble Sissel. And Sissel encouraged him to come to New York and work with the famous band leader, James Reese Europe. And when these white people left to go back to New York, they hired James Reese Europe because he had a very sophisticated orchestra. They all wore tuxes. And and Yubi picked up on this. When he performed with Sissel in vaudeville, they were always very well-dressed. They didn't use blackface, even though sometimes stage managers would say, hey, you didn't put your blackface on. But they really consider themselves artists, not as black stereotypes. Before we leave Atlantic City, didn't he also interact with George M. Cohan? Yeah, he met George M. Cohan there. Later on, they also crossed paths when Cecil and Blake were touring on vaudeville. They were also early friends of Al Jolson's and other vaudeville performers who often came to their aid when they ran into situations where, you know, as a black act, it was hard for them to find hotels that would put them up and places that they could eat when they were touring. And often it took someone like a George M. Cohan or an Al Jolson to find a place and sort of smooth it over so that they could find places to stay while they were on the road. And, you know, I don't think they minded that Jolson was in blackface because it was a trope of the time, sort of. It was the thing that was done. Yeah, the black comedians performed in blackface as well. And you be made a point about that. Well, they were comedians and that was different than what he viewed his role. And in Shuffle Along, the comedians did wear blackface, the two leads, Miller and Lyles, but no one else did. So it was somewhat of a trope, as Ken was saying, of the time. And such a complicated, hard for us to grasp in any way phenomenon, impossible to grasp what was really going on in everybody's mind while it's happening. Yubi made the point. He talked about Ernest Hogan, who was a very famous blackface comedian who was black. And he wrote a song that has a very offensive title, I won't mention, but was a major hit of the day. And Yubi said when he was asked about that in later life by Ian Whitcomb, who's a famous historian of that period, he said, no. Ernest Hogan was not taking advantage. He knew who he was. It didn't affect him. He was just putting on this veneer or mask for the audience. And the fact that he was able to become one of the wealthiest men of his period, black or white, showed the level of craft and intelligence he had. Yubi never felt that blackface was quote-unquote demeaning to the performer. He felt it was demeaning to the audience, which I think is really interesting. It's kind of that classic turning the hateful imagery around and not letting it affect you. And that, I think, was very much his attitude. It's hard for us to put ourselves in the place and the minds and the culture of that period. Absolutely. Like every great biography, it's a series of mini biographies of fascinating people. So I want to start with two people that were very influential in Yubi's life, Noble Sissel and James Reese Europe. 
we might know the name Noble Sissel because we know songs are written by Sissel and Blake, but I feel like James Reese Europe is a name that's lost to most people, and yet he was so influential on music in every way and on Broadway to a great extent as well. Why don't you talk about Sissel a little bit? They met by accident walking down the street, which was interesting. And later, we write about them both writing a song separately without any communication. And when they got together, miraculously, the lyric and the music fit together. They were on the same wavelength, although Sissel thought himself, I would say, more of a dandy than UB. But they were a good team because although they were opposite in some ways, together they were greater than the sum of the parts. They really rose to a different level. And I think they pushed each other and they agreed on the same things. We should not be demeaning ourselves. We should do a class act. We're not going to do any of the stereotypes. They really held together like that. And where did Sissel come from? What was his background? Sissel was college educated. It's unclear how far UP went in school. He may have completed the eighth grade. He claimed to have skipped grades, and so it's not exactly clear. But he was very educated, self-educated to an incredible degree, to the fact where when he was an older man, he studied the Schillinger method, which is a very complicated music theory method as a graduate student. But he was not school-educated. And that was not unusual for that time. It was usual for Black children after they completed the eighth grade to just start working because they had to support their families. Sissel was the son of a Methodist preacher. He was raised in a middle-class environment. His family was from Indiana, but then moved to Cleveland. He attended an all-white high school. There were amazing photographs of him in the Glee Club or on the football team where he's the one blackface. And UB always says that Sissel knew how to deal with white people. He was very comfortable with them, where UB, there was always an edge. The other thing about Sissel was, like UB's two wives, UB tended to attach himself to people that were organized and could promote him. He was a terrible business manager. When he was on his own, he inevitably got into trouble. Like in the 30s, he had his own big band, and he lost so much money, and he couldn't keep track of anything. But Sissel was hyper-organized. When they first met, they wrote a song, and it was Sissel who said, hey, Sophie Tucker's going to be in town. Let's go play this song for her. Maybe she'll sing it. And then Yubi was like, what are you, crazy? You can't just go to Sophie Tucker backstage and pitch a song to her. Plus, you have to have an arrangement. She's not going to just take a song cold. Sissel said, no, we're going to do it. They did it. They placed the song, and she sang it that week, and it made the papers. And he was the first one to make a connection with James Reese Europe. James Reese Europe was, as Ken said, a pioneer among black musicians. He was raised in Washington, sort of a generation earlier than Duke Ellington, came to New York, established himself by leading a band or managing a band or became so popular that he had several Europe bands that would be performing any one night, mostly for private parties. But then he hooked up with the dancing duo of Vernon and Irene Castle. castles who were like the number one popularizer of close dancing which was very scandalous for the time and some of it based on black dance forms many of the dances and in fact Sissel tells some amusing stories about when he was first playing for Europe how everyone was dancing really fast because the white people would do these square dances and they get all sweaty and Sissel said to James Reese York you know we ought to play a slow blues because these people are going to wear themselves out they're going to collapse and they did and 
And that sort of was the basis of what became the Foxtrot. So Europe was extremely important. He composed songs for a number of shows during that period for Williams and Walker, for Ernest Hogan, and was very influential, particularly to Sissel, in the way he presented himself and the way he was a bridge to white society. He had a tragic end of his life. He actually was enlisted to lead a band during World War One, which became the famous Harlem Hellfighters Band. They were associated with the French Army because the U.S. Army didn't admit blacks at that time. They became very famous. They won medals for bravery. And Europe came back and the band was touring. He had two drummers, and one of the drummers apparently felt he was being given the short end of the stick. During the intermission of a performance in Boston, he stabbed Europe. At first, they thought he was okay. Sissel had to actually complete the show, but by the time they got him to a hospital, he had died. So it was a sad ending because he didn't live to see his influence really come forward. But many of the musicians he trained, in turn, trained the great jazz composers of the next generation, like Duke Ellington, like Fletcher Henderson. Again, names that people may not know today, but were groundbreaking performers in their day. So Blake and Sissel meet each other partly through James Reese Europe, both involved with those many, many bands that James Reese Europe sort of owns the New York music scene with during that period. Eventually, after the war, Sissel and Blake decide to team up to go into vaudeville. And this is not black vaudeville. This is white vaudeville. Let's talk about their vaudeville act, which became a sensation. And actually, you can see some of it in early sound movies. There's hints of what they did. But as I said, they performed in tuxedos. They didn't joke around. They didn't speak with Southern accents sense treating the audience as equals to themselves and vice versa. Yubi did not go with Sissel in Europe to serve in France. Yubi was smart enough that he didn't really have an appetite to go fight in the war, and they kind of ragged him about it. But when they came back, they had a major hit with a song called On Patrol in No Man's Land, where Sissel would do the imitation of the bombs going off. Very dramatic. That was their ticket into vaudeville that they kind of played on their World War I status. It's true that they were a class act, but they also did a number of songs that we would consider very stereotyped. They had a song about the little shoes that Mammy gave me when I was but a child. Apparently, this was a showstopper in its day because Sissel would mime the little shoes. It sounds horrible, but it was a big hit then. And UB did some flashy pieces. There's a footage of him playing his variations on Swanee River, which is in the Library of Congress collection. It's really interesting to watch because today we like to think, oh, he played classic ragtime and he never really dabbled in just playing flashy stuff. But in fact, like any performer, he had to play for the audience. So that was his big vaudeville stage number, this very flashy, dramatic version of Swanee River, which again had minstrel roots. For the standards of their time, they were extremely progressive. And certainly, they were the only duo in white vaudeville, except for the comedians Miller and Lyles, who achieved the level of fame. They started out in what was an early act in the evening, what they called the number two position. The critics didn't show up until the third act. So the number two position was not considered great. And they ended up being in the seventh position. 
no one could follow them. Again, the inherent racism of the day, they were still paid the same level that they were paid as a number two act when they graduated to being, you know, seventh or eighth on the bill, whereas white acts would always get raises as they moved up in the lineup. That's the star spot. As you just said, this is not common for black acts to go this far in white vaudeville, except sort of amazingly this other act, Miller and Lyles. How do these two acts come together and end up creating what becomes Shuffle Along? So they had an act that was really a vaudeville act expanded to be sort of a show, sort of a mishmash at the Pekin Theater in Chicago. As Ken and Richard relate in their book, the Pekin Theater, also known as the Pekin Stock Company, was the first American theater devoted solely to black shows. When it opened in 1906, its owner, Bob Motts, stated that the theater shall be a playhouse worthy of the name and a credit to the Negro race. The second show that Miller and Lyles wrote and starred in at the Pekin was titled The Mayor of Dixie. It became a sensation both with black and white audiences and eventually that script would loosely serve as the basis for Shuffle Along. Eventually, their goal, like everybody else's, was to come to Broadway. They had the material, and Cecil and Blake had the music, and they put them together. Like Cecil, they were college-educated. Flournoy Miller was an incredibly talented writer. He had written for Ernest Hogan before writing most of the material that he had performed with his partner, Aubrey Lyles. Their most famous act was a mock prize fight. Lyles was very short. Miller was very tall. And so, you know, it's the classic routine where Miller would put his arm out and Lyles would try to hit him, but he couldn't reach his body. This doesn't sound particularly hysterical to us today, but that was their big act on vaudeville. That was sort of their closer. They created these iconic characters that many comedic duos have mixed, the sort of the country bumpkin versus the city slicker. These tropes go back to minstrelsy and they're in competition with each other. And so they're always in a situation and shuffle along. They each own a grocery store. Each one is trying to be the big dog in the neighborhood. And that gets translated into they both run for mayor and yada, yada, yada. Election day, election day. That's the day when everybody's happy. That's the day when everybody's glad. Election day, election day. That's the day when you forget all the aches and pains you've had. You gather at the election polls and there you stand in line. Although the day be dark and cold, still you will never mind. You're thinking of the politicians whom last year you trusted. And when they got into positions, promises they busted. You try not make the same mistake this election day. Hooray! But book shows of that time were not like the shows we know today that were kind of a narrative show. The shows would literally screech to a halt and they would do these different routines within the context of this loose plot. And in fact, at the end of the second act, just before the big finale, Cecil and Blake did their vaudeville act. So there literally was an inset which was called A Few Minutes with Cecil and Blake because the people who came to the show wanted to see that. That's why these shows are so difficult to revive today, besides the blackface humor, which raises other issues. But for their time, they were quite progressive because they incorporated syncopation and jazz dance and new orchestrations and black humor. Another thing that Miller and Lyles were the originators of was the how high is up routine, you know, where you ask a ridiculous question, a question you can't answer. And the other guy is like, 
like, what? What do you mean? How high is up? Well, how low is down? You know, that kind of verbal interplay and also starting to say one word and the other person picks it up, but with the wrong word and also malapropisms. So they decide our ticket to Broadway is to combine forces, to bring mm-hmm. what you have and what we have together and we'll create a Broadway show and we will be the first black Broadway show in more than a decade. Tell us about some of the challenges of getting Shuffle along even to its first performance. Well, they didn't think of themselves, I don't think, as let's bring a black show to Broadway. They thought, well, let's just do a Broadway show. And John Court's son was an early champion of theirs. The Court Theater in New York is named after him. A.B.'s Irish Rose was his biggest show. And he believed in them to an extent. He wasn't willing to fund the entire show, but he was the producer. And he arranged for things to happen to make the show get up. He was doing it maybe to elevate his son in the theater circles, but he didn't. But not enough to give them enough train fare to get to the next stop. He was like, make it into New York, we'll find you a theater. And they virtually limped into New York. They were in debt, and it wasn't clear that they were even going to be able to open in New York. Originally, they opened in Trenton, New Jersey, in, I guess, what you would consider tryouts. And as Ken said, they didn't have enough train fare for everybody and had to borrow money from a sympathetic person on the platform. And when they played Washington, somebody absconded with all the box office receipts. In those days, it wasn't unusual for companies to tour and be just stranded on the road. And whoever was producing would be like, hey, I got no more money. Good luck getting home. They tell a story of being on the road where they didn't have enough money for food. So they would go to a boarding house and say, oh, we're thinking about bringing the company here. Can we see what your food's like and have dinner? Every day they'd go to a different boarding house (laughs) and feed themselves. You had to do what you had to do to get along. The fact that they even got back to New York was somewhat of a miracle. The biggest miracle was that for whatever foresighted reason, Cecil Blake and Miller and Lyles were co-producers of the show. They didn't put up money, but they put up the talent. And what that meant was when it was a success, these guys became phenomenally rich. I mean, unbelievably well-to-do for that period, to the point where Lyles had his own custom Rolls Royce with a wine cooler in the back that he drove to Chicago for the opening of Shuffle Along there. I mean, they were really in the money, like no other black show that had ever been produced by, written by, directed by, choreographed by an all-black company, and that was revolutionary. On the next episode of Broadway Nation, Richard, Ken, and I will continue our discussion of the highs and lows of U.B. Blake's nearly 100-year life and career, including his extraordinary revival and resurgence in the 1960s and 70s, all of which is documented in their new book, U.B. Blake, Rags, Rhythm, and Race. If you've never been banned by a brown skin, you've never been banned at all. For the vamp and this vamp is the brown skin. Believe me now, that ain't no stall. A high brown gal would make you break out of jail. A chocolate brown would make a tadpole smack a whale. And a pretty seal skin brown, I mean one long and tall, would make the silence faint out in the desert fall. If you've never been bammed by a brown skin, you've never been bammed at all.
Broadway Nation is written and produced by me, David Armstrong. If you enjoyed this podcast, I invite you to join my Broadway Nation Facebook group, where there's a large and lively community of musical theater enthusiasts. We have a great deal of fun, and I feel certain that you will as well. If you'd like to hear more about the early Black inventors of the Broadway musical, you may want to check out episodes three and four of Broadway Nation. Special thanks to everyone at KVSH 101.9, the voice of beautiful Vashon Island, Washington, and to the entire team at the Broadway Podcast Network. This number will be a parade number. The girls will come in and form around the piano, giving a feminine dressing for my partner and I. Of course, my partner needs it, not that I don't. You've never been vamped at all.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.